living You don't wanna miss it I was born to get it This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Before I get to the word of the week, let me remind you to please follow the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast page on Spotify. Just go to the page and click follow. Real simple. Oh, and did I mention for the 500th time that I have a memoir dropping on October 25th that can be pre-ordered wherever books are sold? And next week, I'll mention it for the 501st time. Housekeeping officially done. So I have the same morning routine. I boil two eggs. Don't at me or judge me for it. I just happen to love hard-boiled eggs and also deviled eggs. Anyway, I boil two eggs, have two cups of coffee, and I watch Good Day LA, which comes on Fox 11 here in, obviously, Los Angeles. And real quick, shout out to my girl, Michaela Pereira, who just left Good Day LA. Ah, I'm going to miss her so much. She was the one who helped me get my day started, and she's a good friend of mine, so I'm sorry to see her go. Anyway, uh, so for the last week, every day, Good Day LA has run multiple segments per show about Queen Elizabeth II. They have been tracking this woman's body like she about to rise from the casket at any second. I'm not bullshitting and I'm not even trying to be funny. Now, I can't figure out if the network is covering her passing like this because viewers really want to see this breathless coverage or is it because they're being told to do this? I don't know. Either way, after Queen Elizabeth passed at the age of 96 years old, there was a lot of conversation about her legacy, which is the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. I've been criticized because I pointed out what I thought to be obvious. When you consider a person's legacy, you consider all of it. The good, the bad, the complicated, everything. It's how you put people into perspective and context, especially people who have impacted history as Queen Elizabeth has done. To me, that is what journalists are supposed to do. But I got criticized because I brought up the fact that it was completely fair to factor in the queen's role in colonization. Because here are the facts of the story. When the queen died, she was reportedly personally worth well over $500 million. That $500 million now goes to her son, who now will be known as King Charles, which sounds really weird. And guess what? He also won't have to pay an inheritance tax. Ain't that something? The queen died as one of the richest landowners in the world. The royals, as a family, possess billions in real estate. Now let us ask ourselves, how did they build their wealth? Wait for it. You guessed it, the transatlantic slave trade. Yep. The royals began slaving expeditions in the 1560s with the full support of the first Queen Elizabeth. Between 1672 and 1731, the Royal African Company, which was established by the Duke of York, transported more than 187,000 slaves from Africa to English colonies in North Central and South America. 
between 1690 and 1807, an estimated 6 million enslaved Africans were transported from West Africa to the Americas on British or Anglo-American ships. The slave trade was protected by the royal family and parliament. King Charles II, who reigned from 1660 to 1685, granted a charter to the Company of Royal Adventurers into Africa. The charter gave the royal adventurers an a thousand year monopoly over trade, land and adjacent islands along the west coast of Africa. The king reserved for himself the right to two thirds of the value of any gold mines discovered by controlling English trade with West Africa, which included, again, gold and slaves. The crown gained financial independence from parliament. Now, while Queen Elizabeth II didn't sanction slave trading that ran so deep in her family, she goes to the grave having never acknowledged the considerable wealth that her family was able to build off the agony of enslaved people. Nor did she ever apologize for her family and Britain's role overall in the slave trade. The crown that is resting on the queen's coffin right at this moment is a 317 carat diamond known as the second star of Africa. The diamond was mined in South Africa in 1905 during the height of British colonialism. In fact, there's an even bigger diamond, a scepter, that is over 500 carats. That also was taken. No one in the monarchy has ever given a thought to returning these precious jewels to their rightful countries or giving any reparations at all to the descendants of the enslaved, something we know a lot about here in America. But you know what they did do as part of the deal to end slavery in Britain in 1807? The British government paid out 20 million pounds to compensate slave owners for the lost capital for freeing the slaves. Today, that amount would be 17 billion pounds, which is just shy of 19.7 billion dollars. The amount of money that the British government had to pay out was so large that they didn't finish paying that debt until 2015. That means not only did slave owners get paid, their descendants did too. And there were British citizens paying taxes, not realizing that part of their tax money was going toward paying off slave owners. Now, ain't that some shit? So while people are certainly allowed to celebrate the queen upon her death, People are also justified in not feeling sad or sorry that she's gone. People have no right to be upset that South Africa's Economic Freedom Fighters Party released a statement saying they would not mourn the queen because, quote, to us, her death is a reminder of a very tragic period in this country and Africa's history. While it is certainly true that the vast majority of the British Empire decolonized under the queen's 70 year rule, that didn't happen out of benevolence. It happened because after participating in multiple world wars, the British couldn't afford to maintain its empire anymore. The queen supported decolonizing, but positioning her as a martyr who led the charge is, as my husband likes to say, putting 100 on 10. I'm not being harsh on the queen because I'm pretty consistent with this. When Kobe Bryant passed, I said it was perfectly reasonable and fine if some sexual abuse survivors didn't want to join in remembering Kobe so fondly. That rape trial happened. It was a part of his life. I feel the same way about the queen. If we're going to tell the story of her reign, we have to tell it all and not just the parts that people like. I'm not saying you have to lead with the worst parts, but sometimes it's those parts that help us see the whole person and not just what we want to see. When it's my time, I want the complete story told, the good, the bad and everything in between. If any legacy isn't rooted in truth, 
then it's not much of a legacy. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest on today's podcast is somebody who I didn't become aware of until a few years ago. And I really hate that because she is somebody I wish I would have been a day one fan of. She's a multi-talented, multi-dimensional artist. My man, Black Thought, who gave her her stage name, called her a quadruple threat. Now, there is just such depth and feeling in her lyrics, and that is rare these days. She makes you feel something every time you listen to her, and she has something to say. And y'all know how much I love people who have something to say. So if you aren't familiar with her and you don't go out and download all of her music on Spotify after you listen to this podcast, I'm going to be very disappointed. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Maya Muna Youssef, a.k.a. Moo Moo Fresh. start with maybe my favorite Moo Moo Fresh line ever, which was sometimes being a woman is like being black twice. Mm-hmm. That's a bar. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It is. That is a bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the truth. And the truth as well. And I was like, man, she just, that, that just shook me like right here. Okay. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, you're a great lyricist, a great hip hop artist, a great singer. Like there's not a lot of people who can be great at all of these things, but you manage to be great at everything you do. I know I'm just gassing you up. I'm like, let me gas her up, gas her up. Thank you. Um, oh my goodness. But before we dive deep into who you are and your mm-hmm. journey and how you got started, I'm going to start by asking you a question that I ask every guest that appears on the podcast. Since it is Alrighty. called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Uh-huh. When did you become unbothered? <sighs> I think it's still a process. For me, it's like having bothered moments and then reminding myself like, you ain't got to be bothered by that. They don't own you. They don't run you. You own your own stuff. Um, and I think keeping in mind that like ownership is so important. The things that we build are really important. You know, someone can always run you and tell you what to do, what you can and can't say, how you can think when they own it, you know, but when you own the thing that you're doing and you're building your own infrastructure for the ones that you love, then you can speak your own voice. And so I kind of keep that in mind when I'm in situations that could be bothersome, I have to remind myself that they don't run me. They don't own me. You know, I built myself. I'm building uh, an even bigger platform for people like me to be able to, you know, to speak their truths and to be unbothered. <laughs> and, and I think that's just, that's just the key. It's like ownership is a key, building your own. So it's like, okay, y'all can be like that. I'm be over here building Noah's Ark. Okay. <laughs> so that, that reminder helps me to be unbothered. You can do what you want in your stuff. Because I have the opportunity and the wherewithal, the capability to be able to build my own, you know. So I'm glad you talked a lot about independence because I think because you're an independent artist, there's an assumption that, oh, she's an independent artist because she couldn't get a deal or. Right. Right. But your independence seems to be very central to who you are. Um, So just talk about why you have decided to remain an independent artist. Yeah, I feel like I, I was built this way. You know, both my parents are entrepreneurs and sovereign in their spirits. You know, I always consider my mom a sovereign nation, just the way she moves in the world. She's she's God's property, you know, and no man's, you know. Um, and so I, I feel like I was just brought up under that, knowing that we live 
in an, in an oppressive system. We were born into this oppressive system. And so we've always been seeking ways to fight for our humanity in this. And so that has caused us the biggest way we can fight for our humanity is with ownership. You know, so my mother's an artist. She was in the music business before I was born. And so she would always speak to me really young about make sure you own what you do. Your intellectual property, make sure you own it. Don't let anyone own you. Um, you decide who you are, what's your story. Tell your own story. And so I, at the time that I was like just learning and getting into the industry and learning what it meant to be to be a professional artist, I realized it, it, I couldn't find a place where, where they were allowing artists to tell their own story and to have any kind of sovereignty and ownership. And it just didn't sit well with who I was created to be, you know, like who I was born to be. I, I couldn't really swallow it or stomach it. So I, I, from the very beginning, you know, and I've had meetings with with labels and we've done artist development deals and, you know, and, and, and record deals when I had a, a rap group. So I, I, I stuck my foot in it for a second. I was like, mm, nah, that doesn't sit well with me, you know, and I wanted to show other artists how they can have more self-autonomy in particular over their messaging you know, over their um, their belief systems. Because there's so many artists that don't have the opportunity to stand up for things that, that they think are right because it might offend, you know, whatever company owns them or owns their, their name and likeness and intellectual property. And so I just, I wanted to have an opportunity to to be free and to speak free, freely and to um, decide how I was going to show up in the world without someone else telling me what I, how I could show up in the world. So you got in the business even though I know you've been singing basically your whole life, but you didn't get into the business of what, 16, 17 years um, old? About 18. 18, we, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you were starting out and starting to get interest, what was the feedback that you were hearing from people in the industry about mm-hmm. the type of artists they yeah. thought you were? Yeah, it was like- um, Or wanted you to be. I definitely, the feedback was that it was too revolutionary. <laughs> we were very, very highly politicized. You know, I was homeschooled most of my life. And so my teachers were like Ivan Van Sertma and um, Jewel Pukram. And, um, you know, we would go out and see Sister Soldier and <laughs> KRS-One and, um, you know, Doc Ben, all, all these different uh, philosophers and and black authors, like that's who we were studying. And so we were very aware of what was going on in the world and we were talking about it. Yeah, they let me know early on that you'll never sell a record. <laughs> you know, it's like you 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 have to tone down all this black power stuff. Like there's no way you're gonna be able to make money and, and do this. And also that I was I was coming from a very jazzy background. My mother's a jazz singer. Um, I studied jazz music as as a child, and so my knowledge of black music, the lineage of black music was very present in my tone, in my delivery, the texture, you know, e- everything, the, the way I, I, the way I performed and, and sang, I carried those ancestors with me. And so, um, you know, uh, <laughs> people thought that to be such a, a, a young teenage girl, like, how do you, you know, you, you sound like you're 40 years old, you know, singing these, these, uh, with this jazz tone. And so just so much of who I was just didn't seem to be very palatable with how they wanted to sell me, you know? So how did you absorb that feedback? Like it never made you discouraged or feel like maybe I shouldn't do this. Okay. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely very discouraging, but you know, some things when you really meant to do something, you can't, it's not something I could take off because you didn't like it, you know, because I wasn't pretending it was authentic. So I can't take off who I am to now become whoever you think I should be. You know, there are some people that can do it. They can put the hat on and take it off. And I, I couldn't do that. 
Um, and I just had to stay consistent with what felt authentic for me and my spirit. And, and at some point I knew it would come full circle. At some point people would catch up because um, like where I came from was so far away from where they wanted me to go. You know, like I learned to sing in my mother's kitchen. You know, when my grandmother would be cooking and I'll be sweeping and, I'm, you know, we shucking corn. And it was just a way that we expressed it ourselves, the way we showed love to each other. You know, my, my grandmother would just start moaning. And my mama start moaning and she said, come on, child, moan. And I start moaning. I ain't nothing to moan about it that time. But, you know, and it was just this the spirit would take over and it really was a spiritual process. People would call my grandmother to lay hands on them and she would sing over their bodies and, and move, shift pain out of their bodies. That's what I understood music to be about. I didn't know until, and again, I told you we was homeschooled. So I didn't have a, my mother really curated what the inside of the house was like. I didn't have a whole lot of access to what people were doing outside. So when I got into the music industry, it just was a I didn't understand music as this thing to be commodified and packaged and sold something that was separate from the spirit. I didn't, I was like, how, how does that work? Why would you do that? Why would you separate it from God though? You know? And so that was, uh, I, I never, I never could. I tried to shoe on. It just didn't fit. I couldn't walk in it. And so I just had to, you know, keep cultivating what was real for me. What I understood sound, the purpose of sound to be about, which was healing. I had to just keep cultivating that and know that, at some point, my tribe would find me. At some point, the world, the chain, the tides would change and, and you know, it would become illuminated and my purpose would be fulfilled. I had to just wait on it. <laughs> no, I feel you. A producer in television told me this many years ago. He said, you can be two types of people. You can either be the McDonald's billion served or you can be that cute boutique restaurant on the corner is maybe only one, but everybody fucks with this place. Right, Y'all right. sold out every night right. because people just love to eat there. Yeah. And so it seemed like you had a, a boutique mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of spirit. Um, You were talking about your grandmother, gospel singer, correct? Your grandmother yeah, sang gospel. Yeah, she was choir director, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, your parents, Black nationalists. Mm-hmm. So growing up in that environment, how do you think it kind of informed your voice. Oh yeah, completely. That's why I say I don't I don't feel like I had a choice cuz once you know you have been um, awakened, you kind of can't go back to sleep. Once you know what you know, there's no way to fake like you don't anymore. And because I I was made aware so early, first it, it creates a sense of rage inside of you, right? To to be black and awakened in America to be in a constant state of rage, Hello, right? James Baldwin. <laughs> um and then it's like, and then we're figuring out, well, we're always seeking for solutions. And then we, we, we're upset that other, when other people aren't seeking for solutions, you know, and we, you, you're upset when people want to assimilate and when you want to tear down and rebuild it, you know? So it, it was, it was everything. It, it was, it was the reason why I couldn't just go along and get along because I already knew too much. I was, I was steeped in it, you know what I mean? Cooked in it, simmered in it. <laughs> and it was, yeah, I, I, I couldn't go back. And it, it was a code and a creed, you know, that my parents would talk to me about. And you keep, you stay on code no matter what nobody else is doing, period. You know, you know, that's what you live by. You live by it and you die by it. That, that was everything. That was everything. And I, I couldn't turn it off, you know? So even coming into the music business with a strong sense of identity, how did you find your voice in your own music? Yeah, so I think taking what my parents uh, introduced me to in terms of Black nationalism and 
you know, understanding the Black Panther Party and Liberation Army and being with the Hebrew Israelites and all of these different sects of the the underworld, really. You know what I mean? So many of these cultures were like up under the floorboards of, of America pop, American popular culture. Um, but what I started to understand and, and what transformed in my own music was that um, the revolution outside would not work if we didn't revolutionize the inside first. So if we were not able to do the personal development work so that we could show up whole enough to see this movement through, it was never going to work. You know, there's no way that government agencies would have been able to destabilize us in our movements had we been doing enough of the personal work on the inside to be whole enough to not be um, lured in by the drugs, lured in by the, you know, the, the sexism, lured in by, by the, all of the other things that, that broke us down from the inside. Um, and so then I said to myself, you know, then I want my music to be about personal development work. I think that's revolution. You know, I started homeschooling my own son. I think homeschooling is revolution giving our children a chance to be analytical thinkers, you know, before we force them into this, our way of thinking and say, you have to think like this if you want to make it in the world, give them an opportunity to recreate what could the world be, reimagining a, a space. That's what evolution is supposed to be about. We're not supposed to force them into thinking exactly like we were forced to think. Um, and so that's how my music changed. So you, the typical like activist song that you may think about, when you think of a song about activism, you may think about, uh, police brutality, or you may think about, um, you know, women's rights, or you may think about immigration. To me, it, you know, activism started becoming about the healing work. Because if we can heal ourselves on the inside, then we can heal our homes. We can heal our relationships with our parents, with our children, with our siblings. We can heal our homes. And from a healed home, we can build a healed community. From a healed community, you get what I'm saying? And then some of the pitfalls that we fall victim to because we're not healed intentionally because we were intentionally destabilized and traumatized for generations. So it's not our fault that we're not healed, but it is our responsibility to get healed. You know? So that's, then my music started changing. It started being about, it's not just about fight the power. It's about heal the trauma, you know? And, and, and I, and I don't mean that in any kind of cliche way. I mean, the ugly, self-reflection work, the really breaking down the subconscious narrative that tells us we're not good enough, that we can't, that no matter what we do, it ain't going to work. Like that subconscious narrative that that stops us from becoming the full expansive, you know, versions of, of ourselves. That's freedom fighting work, you know? And so that changed from what I, from what I, I taught. So now the beautiful thing about you know, evolution. And I'm grateful to have my parents here is that I can go back and talk to my parents about this. So now it was like, they, they taught me and now I'm going back and teaching them. And now we're able to evolve together, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's legacy. That's how it's, that's how it's yeah. built. Right. Um, but it was your, your brother, your older brother who uh -huh. kind of taught you how to rap. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. Uh, explain that relationship and what that was like. Oh man. <laughs> my older brother. Yep. We call him bird, man. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Birdman. Yeah, so, you know, we we lived in uh, West Baltimore um, near the masjid. And so I was at the time I was going to school at the masjid. And so after school, we all walked back home and all his friends would come gather around the stoop and they'd all be out there rapping. And so he didn't want us to walk past his friends in the summertime. So he would say, y'all got to stay in the house while we out here rapping. 
we ain't got no AC. It's hot in here. Nobody's staying in here. I'm just trying to go to the corner store, the Smitty's, and get some Western fries. Why do I have to stay in here? This is ridiculous. You're so Baltimore. <laughs> like, nobody's staying in here. So I started coming out to the front steps. And he was like, you got to go in the house. Right? But he wouldn't say it like that. He would start battling me. You know what I mean? Just talking about your teeth crooked, your bow leg, your knock knee, your, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> your father this. You know what I mean? Your mother this. So he started going on me. And so... You know, naturally, I'm like, all right, well, let me try to say something about you. And it was trash. But I kept trying, you know, and I kept coming back out there each day, finding something to say about him. And he was one of those battle rappers that would just destroy your self-esteem. So you really had to build up your confidence to come against him. He's super witty. <laughs> and yeah, so, you know, eventually, eventually, you know, I hit a couple of bars. I don't even know what it was. But everybody said, oh, that's when you know you got it, right? That's when you know you won, right? So I was like, yeah, your friends that I can rap. You know, so, um, and he'll tell the story and say, it wasn't that her bars was good. She just could take an ass whooping well. <laughs> that's not true, okay? <laughs> and I can rap better than him now. So, um, yeah, so he let me sit out on the front stoop. And then that became, now he's like, all right, you want to be a rapper, you have to learn, you know, all of the uh, members of the Wu-Tang Clan and their aliases. <laughs> and their aliases. You know, like they got a gazillion. Everybody got like 20 aliases. You know, and, I, and so that's, so he, I started writing down all the raps of the Wu-Tang Clan. And I had to like recite them back and everything like that. You know, and he'll be Shaolin style. <laughs> you have mastered the first level, you know? <laughs> he didn't do all that stuff. So he put me through Wu-Tang Clan school and whatnot. <laughs> so he put you through like a Wu-Tang boot camp. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, who else? Beanie Siegel. All types of people I wasn't supposed to be listening to that young. <laughs> um, yeah. But so, and that became like our bonding moments. Kind of like, damn, you a girl, but at least you can rap. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll forgive you. So, uh, so what was the first rap that you learned? Assassination, vaccination, poeducation, infatuation, global taxation, micro-optic, microscopic, biological germ. Isn't that crazy? That's the first one. Mad Cal Burgley in the market, captain of your starship. I never departed once I started. That's crazy. It's that. crazy you still remember that. I know. <laughs> I think it's crazy you still remember that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. But it was 14 of you guys, right? Yes. You're one of 14. Not all in the same house, right. though. Not if my mother's kids. My mother has four kids, but mm. like all my father's kids. And and my father's so funny because he just loves children. He's always trying to adopt new kids. <laughs> so not, I didn't realize until I was an adult that not everybody was biological. But he's just always trying to bring kids into the family. Like one time a, a young woman came to him and said, I think you might be my father. You know, can we take a DNA test? He says, hey, you don't have to take a test. Just come on. I'll just be your father. She's like, well, well no, if you're not my father, this is weird. You know, yeah, so he said, well, if I take the test, and I'm not your father. Will you still like just let me father you? She was like, eh. Anyway, so they take the test and he's not uh, her father. And he was like all depressed about it. And I was like, hello, we're here. You're real kids. Are you really mad about this stranger? Oh, my God. Uh, it sounds like, though, your household was quite lively. <laughs> to <laughs> at, say the at, least. At, at the very least. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, growing up in, in that kind of environment, uh, you mentioned the confidence portion of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, who would you say maybe you absorbed and learned the most about confidence from? Well, you know, growing up in the hood, there's a certain amount of abuse that you have to take. So you build your confidence by fire, right? Because you're constantly being joned on and torn down. Yeah. So it's not like today where, you know, people feel like if you don't get bullied, you'll be more confident. It was almost the opposite. It was like from constantly having to fight back against, you know, 
And we didn't even call it bullying. It was just like, I don't know. Just, just the way it was. It's right? just the way it was. Anybody could get it. You know, <laughs> you're not special. <laughs> Anybody could get it. And you had to learn how to defend yourself. But I will say that my mother always talked to me about um, being divine. You know, you're a divine being. Don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, she talks like that. And about the company that you keep, making sure you're around people that are helping you elevate and just what your value is and, and your worth. You know, in the very beginning, boy, my mom was really intense with the labels that we were uh, trying to work with. You know, she would. my mom's Native American, so she would come into the label with her tomahawk and put it on the table like it was a pistol, you know, before we had the conversation. I'm like, Mommy, can you put the tomahawk back in the car? Um, <laughs> and, you know, she would just start by... I want to just talk to you about my daughter's worth, you know? And at the time, I felt like that was so much. It's so extra. Why are you being like that? You know? And she would even bring in, bring my virginity into it. I was just like, ugh, <laughs> yo. Um, but at the time, I didn't understand. But I, I get it, being a mom myself and being in the industry long enough to know that people will try and try and try to diminish your value. Even after you've proven your value over and over again, they still want to see if they can try to crack, put a crack in your confidence and your sense of self. Like, what do you get out of that? You know? Um, and so I get that her having gone through so much already knew like they're going to try to break her. They're going to be, they're going to be insulted by her confidence. Who do you think you are thinking anything of yourself? You know? thinking that you're you're more than your body. Who do you think you are? And and that was the truth, but I didn't know. And so I was just feeling like she was being so over the top. And it's like, oh my God, you're trying to ruin my life. <laughs> you know, but now I can have those same conversations. I can walk into a room knowing my value and I'm never going to settle for less than what, what I know I'm worth. You know, your mom sounded like she was off the hook. Yes. Are you the same Still. way? I don't think so. Oh, y'all always <laughs> say that. You're like, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um... My, uh, no, I mean, in some ways, but my mother's a one of a kind. You know, mm. my grandmother had a dream that she should name her Nataaska mm. in the 40s. Mm. And Nataaska, she didn't know at the time, but it is the name of a Kachina in the Hopi uh, mythology system who is the guard that protects children, that scares people, any kind of enemy territory. I mean, it scares enemies away from coming to their territory. And she has, she definitely has lived up to that name. Like she is a protector of women and children. Like she's that, she's my goon for real. <laughs> like she's the one I'm gonna call when something needs to go down. You know what I mean? Like my daddy a goon, but my mama a goon goon. <laughs> and, um, and you all know because she's just like, you know, always praying for you and stuff. And it's like, mm, those she the, the ones that'll <laughs> cut you out in the name of Jesus. Those the ones. <laughs> the ones. So, you know, I haven't got I, I haven't gotten there yet. Maybe I'll get there one day. But I think I'm, you know, our relationship is like my mom's a Virgo, right? I don't know if you know anything about Virgos. I know a little. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Virgos can be very intense. <gasps> no. <laughs> it can be very, very intense. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm a Pisces, right? Mm. And so the thing that we my mother always says that like I taught her to be like more compassionate and mm. to um, you know, and my mother helped me set boundaries with people. You know, so it's like, yeah, we we help balance each other out. No, oh, okay, but you you feel like you're not well. I know I'm sure you're over overprotective being a mother, but mm-hmm. do you try to instill kind of the same 
lessons and stuff that you definitely in terms of like self-worth value me and my son talk about that all the time setting your boundaries with people you know build building your own so you don't have to keep asking for permission to be your whole self you know what i mean not cowering in the face of anyone not being pressed to assimilate you know showing up as your full self especially keeping his indigenous culture and 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 black culture very present in, in who you are like we you don't have to be um, anything else to be able to make money, to be able to thrive, because because your abundance comes from God, not from man. So they can't stop your abundance, and whatever's for you is for you. It ain't even coming from them. God is using them, right? And um, so things like that, I feel like those are conversations that that we have. Because my mother was very adamant, and my grandmother about me not forgetting my indigenous heritage, which I probably would have, because it would have been easier for me. Um, but they made, I, I danced in powwows from the time I was like four or five until I was 14. So I competed, you know, and um, I supported my mother in her vision quest. You know, my mother's a water pourer for the sweat lodge. And so I, I stayed in ceremony. You know, my my sweet 16, I was in a sweat lodge with my face pressed down to the mud in prayer. And so I have some similarities where I, I really want him to really un- embrace all of who he is. But my son and I also, we are a lot closer in age than me and my mother are, you know? Right. Like, my mom had me close to her 40s. And I had him, you know, when I first turned 20, you know? Mm. So, we, um, it's just a different kind of relationship, you yeah. know, that that we have, yeah. Well, I have so many more questions to ask okay. you. Um, definitely want to get into your Tiny Desk performance, which Woo-hoo. was phenomenal. But Thank you. we're just going to take a very quick break. Okay. And we'll be back with more with Moo Fresh. Last week, Quinta Brunson, the creator and star of Abbott Elementary, made history at the Emmys by becoming the first black woman to be nominated in three comedy categories the same year, which included being the youngest black woman ever nominated as an actress in comedy. She walked away as the winner for Outstanding Comedy Writing, just the third black person to win that award and the second black woman, the first being Lena Waithe. That should have been the sole headline, but it wasn't. Instead, the dominant headline was about talk show host Jimmy Kimmel, who during Quintus' acceptance speech was lying on stage pretending to be drunk. In fact, Quinta placed her phone on him and had to step over him to get to the microphone to thank all the people who helped her get this wonderful achievement. For those of us who are watching at home, it wasn't funny. And instead of it being a historic celebratory moment for this fabulous creator who has given us one of the best television shows in recent years, it literally became the Jimmy Kimmel show. After her win, Quinta was asked about Jimmy Kimmel's behavior on stage. And here's what she said. I think in that moment, I was just really happy that it was that it was Jimmy up there. I kind of consider him one of the the comedy godfathers. I'm a huge fan of Will Arnett. So I was wrapped up in the moment. I don't know. Tomorrow, maybe I'll be mad at him. I'm going to be on his show on Wednesday, so I might punch him in the face. I don't know. Jimmy and Quinta have a relationship, and while she may not be as bothered as some of us were who were watching, and even her co-star, Cheryl Ralph, said it was disrespectful, I'm not sure Quinta had much choice but to say what she said after her win. My husband has often said to me that the situation he regrets are the ones where he felt like he wasn't as assertive as he should have been. 
almost like he feels like he backed down when he shouldn't have. And I got a story to tell about a situation that had some similarities to Quinta's that I wished I would have handled a lot differently. I hadn't thought about this situation in a long time, but last week, my friend Vince brought it up when he and I were having dinner with another friend of his. He reminded me of this time when I was in my 20s and covering Michigan State basketball for the free press. And a bunch of us who covered the team, we were sitting around shooting the shit and we were talking about the journalism industry, something we talked about all the time. Now, I don't remember what the lead up was, but an older white sports writer who covered the team on a regular basis said to me that it was going to be easy for me to get opportunities in our business because I was a black woman and they weren't checking for white guys like him. Now, keep in mind, almost 90 percent of sports media jobs are held by white men. There were probably 15 or 20 different media outlets that covered Michigan State basketball during that time. And I was the only black woman who covered them. If the business was so infatuated with hiring black women, then why was there not more of me when I looked around the locker room? Every last regular beat writer covering Michigan State was a white man. I was insulted, to say the least. And this was someone who I considered to be a friend. In that moment, as soon as he said that there were going to be easier opportunities for me because I was a black woman, I had two options. Cuss him out or be diplomatic. If I chose option A, cussing him out, that would change the entire dynamic of our group. Realize when you're a beat writer covering a team, traveling to cover games, and in this case, traveling to places like Madison, Wisconsin, State College, Pennsylvania, West Lafayette, Indiana, it can be a lonely existence. The other beat writers who also travel covering the team can become like a surrogate family because you all are at all the games together, practices, staying in the same hotels. Many times you often eat together, have drinks together. We had a really good group. And once I take it there and cuss out one of their brethren, particularly since this beat writer had covered the team for a long time and had a lot of relationships, then what does that do to our group dynamic? Would they all distance themselves from me because suddenly I'd be the angry black woman? or the woman they couldn't be themselves around because I wouldn't hesitate to remind them I deserve dignity? Would they label me sensitive? When you're a black person, and definitely as a black woman, these are the things that go through your head. You know you can't pop off like everybody else. You worry about things you shouldn't even have to consider. So in thinking about Quinta's situation, has she told the media that she thought what Jimmy Kimmel did was rude, then he's still the story. And worse, her reaction is a story, too. Suddenly, she can't take a joke. Suddenly, she's angry. It would have cast an even bigger shadow on a tremendous accomplishment. And just so all you know, I chose option B, diplomacy. I politely reminded him that there wasn't anybody else on the beat that looked like me. So people like me clearly didn't have opportunities falling out of the sky. I dropped it after that. And I never brought it up again. I never told him that what he said hurt my feelings. And I was embarrassed that he said that in front of my other colleagues. It made me wonder if all the white guys who covered the team at that time, all of whom I had considered friends, if they thought the only reason I was in that job was because I was a black woman and not because I was talented and good at my job. But that's the unfair burden we bear. No matter what, somebody is always around to remind us of what we don't deserve or what they think we haven't earned. 
And now back to more with Moo Moo Fresh. So I mentioned before the break, your Tiny Desk performance. And I am ashamed that I was not aware of you until I saw that because I'm a big fan of Tiny Desk, right? And when I tell you, that's a top five Tiny Desk performance. Aww. And you know how hard it is, yes. like how many great artists that they often have. Yes. Yours was top five and it ain't five. Yo, hear me well, I love my brothers. I give you all your props. Don't be mad at me, cause I'm a showstopper. I'm a jaw dropper, flyer than the helicopter. Read you like a teleprompter, but I never tell a copper. And so if you listen right now. <laughs> Thank you so y'all much. Y'all need to run to YouTube and check Moo Moo out on this mm. t- a Tiny Desk Give performance. I'm, I'm serious, like... <laughs> Y'all laid it down. So I know that performance had a huge impact on your career. Oh, yeah. Like, what was the the aftershocks? What, oh, what happened goodness. in the aftermath? <laughs> it was literally like when the Tiny Desk... Actually, before I did my own Tiny Desk, it was the Tiny Desk I did with Common. Right. So where I featured, I did 16 bars on his song, Practice. And when that song came out, it came out like, I think the first day of, of Women's History Month. And literally, my my Instagram was like clink 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 clink. You like I had to I had to turn the sound off. Like wait a minute. Like overnight, it was like hundreds of thousands of people had started following me and you know making comments and liking it. It was super overwhelming. You know, I hadn't really experienced that before. Um, and I was just was I was so grateful. You know, because you you can have a famous viral moment for any ridiculous thing. Right. So to have it for it's something, usually not something good. No, <laughs> not exactly. <times> <laughs> yeah. So to have it for something that was so meaningful to me, I just was so I was so grateful that it was that, and it was something that I really I really meant every word of it, and for it to land. You know, sometimes it doesn't land, and, and for it to land with men. Mm. You know, because sometimes we understand, we know what we go through, right. but men might be like, eh, you know. Is it that deep? Are you being dramatic? So for men to really say, like one guy reached out to me on my Instagram and he said, your tiny desk would come and help me and my wife's relationship. He said, I really didn't understand what she was going through until I listened to your rap verse and I played it for her. And I said, hey, does this ring true for you? And we got into a really deep conversation that has totally changed the way our relationship is. I realized I was not showing up for her. I was not considering her. I, I, you know, I had never even considered, you know, that she may feel some type of way about different things. And it is totally changed the nature of how me and my wife interact. Thank you. That was like everything to me, you know, because I wanted to make sure that it is, it, it wasn't coming. I didn't want it to come off like any kind of angry attack. It's not that I need you to hear my heart. You know, how are we going to do? We ha- we need each other. You know, you can't do this thing without me. I can't do this thing without you. Listen to my heart. And so sometimes I feel like when I was writing that verse, I was having a conversation with a, a black man trying to explain to him some things I was dealing with. And he was kind of like very nonchalant about it. And I said, hey, you know how you feel at your firm with white men? You see how, you know how they pass you up and how. So I had to give him this whole scenario. Yeah, yeah, I don't like that. Right. So it's just like that. Right. <laughs> but that happens with me and you. <laughs> you understand? Right, right. And because you love me, I want you to advocate for me. That's all mm. I'm asking you to do. You love me, right? So advocate for me. We're not beefing. We're in this thing together. I'm just asking you, can you hear my heart? Can you look at my perspective? The same thing you don't like, I don't like that either. It doesn't feel good. Can we work together so that we both can feel good? That seems fair, right? Yeah. And he had this whole epiphany. And so I wrote the verse after having that that conversation with him because it's like, I want you to get this. I don't want to attack you and tear you down and make you feel so defensive that you just 
turn away. No, I need you to get it. I need it to land and I need you to do something about it. You know, and that that's what that verse was for me. And I was like literally at the point of tears saying it, you know, and and when I was when the verse was over, my eyes were closed and everybody just started like shouting. I was like, I was almost like oh, you know, like and so it just was I was super grateful. So the tiny desk reached out to me afterwards to do my own tiny desk, you know, which was just like a super blessing. And I was like, all right, I got a, a shot to do this. Like, I want to bring my whole self. I want to tell my whole story. You know, I want to talk about my son, about homeschooling, about, you know, broken relationships. I want to talk about broken families. I want to talk about the women in my line. I want to, you know, I want to tell this story of, of this Afro-Indigenous experience raised in the gutters of Baltimore. You know, I want to I want to tell these things and I want to celebrate our resilience because we, you know, we're not showing up all shiny and pretty, but we, but we showed up though. We, we're here. We made it. Mm-hmm. And so many didn't. So you're going to give me mine because, <laughs> okay, what it took for me to even be here today, you know? And and again, it was received. Like, it just, oh, I can't even talk about it. <laughs> it made me like, oh, man, God is good. Uh, so you, um, you used to sing back up with the roots, right? Yeah. Uh, so how did that even come about? Uh, I was recording in a studio that they were also recording in. And, um... I used to just go into their to their room and just see like if they needed any help with anything. Like I was like, you know, first of all, I was like super excited, like oh my god, the roots. I've been listening to them since I was like a little girl. Uh, it's one of the reasons we moved to Philly. I was like, oh my god, we could live in Philadelphia half life. <laughs> and um, so I would just go to their studio and just sit in the room with them and just write little things and see if they liked any of my ideas. And um, Dice Raw called me to the studio one time and he had he had an idea, so I came in the studio and we cut this song. And um, it ended up being their single. So then they asked me to go on tour, you know, to promote to promote that song. And um, yeah, so I mean, I had no rehearsal. I remember, geez, I must have been 19 maybe. And I went to, to Quest used to let me sit in his record room and listen to all his different records, which I, I used to be there all day long. Like, oh my God, you know, just like <laughs> a kid in a candy shop. And so he said, you know, he asked me if I wanted to go into a Rich Nichols, may rest in peace. And uh, so we had a rehearsal. Nobody showed up with bequests. And so I'm thinking like, okay, when's everyone coming to rehearsal? He said, well, we don't rehearse. I was like, well, how am I supposed to know what to do? And he goes over the song. You know this song, right? Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I heard it when I, you know. And so he's like telling me, I want you to sing this part, that part. He's writing it down. And he says, okay, well, I'll see you on the bus tomorrow. And I'm like, what? what? Wait a minute. No, I don't know how to. And I learned on the road. He would talk to me, you know, in my ear and tell me what to do. And, and it was so funny because a lot of the original songs, I didn't know the original version. I only knew, like, the rap version of it. So I'm, like, learning so much, like, disco and funk and all this stuff that I just did not know because I was a child, uh, you know, on tour. I'm just figuring it out. And it really, really, like, tightened up my performance chops. It let me know I could do anything on stage, you know, Um Cause we went all around the world and we ain't never had no rehearsal. I just, I figured it That's out amazing. night after night, you know? Oh, wow. I mean, and obviously they have a little lineage there with backup singers cause Jill sang backup mm-hmm. for them too. So mm-hmm. uh, there must be something to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say though, uh, as you've, you know, gotten to this point where, um, you know, you've come so far in your musical journey, mm-hmm. what are some of the things you feel like have been, you know, really key to keeping you centered? spiritual practice for sure like um just affirming myself you know no matter what's happening in the industry what trend is happening what other artists are doing what 
what did God assign you to do? What's your assignment? And that helps bring me right back because then nobody else matters. It's just about what is your assignment, you know? Um, and that that's a serious mantle. That's a, you know, that's a serious job. Um, so that the spiritual practice and keeping things in perspective, I think my son has really kept me so, so grounded and so balanced. I really couldn't be involved in no nonsense. You know, I had to get back to my baby. <laughs> Right. Every time I don't, I'm not staying no extra days, fly me in on the day of, and I'm leaving right after I got to get back to my baby. And then when I was able to start doing my own tours, you know, I, I flew my son out as my merchandiser. So he would do all my merchandise for the tour. And what, when I was homeschooling him, like that was his math class, you know, so he would manage all the merchandise and the money that was coming in and out. When we go to different countries, he's going over the conversion rate. We're figuring out how much taxes we got to pay in this country on this merchandise. And when we go to the next country, what has to happen in that country? How, you know, calculate all the expenses for the whole band. And, you know, and so he worked through me with that. I had him read all my contracts. Oh, and wow. understand contractual language. So you're raising like a little lawyer. Right. <laughs> right. But it's like we in the transit. I can't. I'm driving. I need you to read my contract. Like I got turned in today. <laughs> right. Highlight all these parts. And he would say, what does this mean? Perpetuity? Tell them no. They got five <laughs> years. That's that's <laughs> no to perpetuity in this lifetime and the next. No, scratch that out, too. We're not doing that. And it just, you know, again, that conversation about your worth and ownership and legacy. Everything I'm doing, I'm leaving it to him, you know, so I'm going to fight for it in a different way. It means something to me. My intellectual property means that my grandkids are going to eat. So I'm looking at it like that. Um, so those, those are things that, like, my son keep me stable. And I'm so grateful for what, for who he has become because he toured with me. He's a different person, you know. And it's like I wouldn't have been able to give that to him um, if I wasn't doing music and if I was doing music with another organization that was deciding my destiny, you know, because I was able to do it for myself, start a record label, put on my own tours. I was able to bring my son with me, um, build out my schedule so that when we're in this country, you know, we're going to the biggest museum that they have. You know, we're going to go to to this artifact and learn about these different things. It's really changed. I, I love seeing now that he's like older, Seeing how he responds to people, what what he tolerates, and you know what his boundaries are, and what he figures out on his own, like, and not waiting for no handouts. You know, he handles his business, and it's just like it makes me so happy. But I know that independent spirit, you know, that he experienced being on an independent tour, a real independent tour. <laughs> all right, because sometimes artists don't realize some, your label's independent, you're not. Right. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so being on a real independent tour, it has really shaped how he feels about the things that he's building now, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, how did you come up with the name Moo Moo Fresh? That's Black Thought. That's <laughs> Black Thought. Yeah, we, um, yeah, that, the, I feel like I was like doing, trying to do some like fake Rozelle beatboxing or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> hyping him up. And it was kind of like, oh yeah, Moo Moo Fresh, you Moo Moo Fresh, you know, my fake, my fake Dougie Fresh beatboxing. Um, I love that the Dougie Fresh is, you know, he's giving me the anointing. Okay. He signed off. Yeah, on I'm it. The, fresh, right. the fresh lineage, you know, and uh, Raheem Devon was the first person to like say it on track. Cause at first it was like a, something that we, you know, kind of in house. Mm -hmm. But uh, he started saying it on track. And then my web designer said, you know, your name is long. Maybe you should go by Mumu Fresh. Nobody can find you online. Oh, that's funny. Somebody once asked you to describe yourself and you called yourself a panoramic experience. <laughs> what true. did you mean by that? Yeah, you know, a panoramic, you you can't see it in a three by five, you know? You have to take a whole bunch of little shots to see the whole frame. I do think I've had such a wealth of experiences 
and I'm a whole person, you know, and, and I love being a whole person. So it's hard if you just want a little snapshot or just give me a little clint. It's like, uh, okay, I know <laughs> you only gonna get one. You know what I mean? Like I'm a panoramic, yeah. It's like I'm I'm a full, full expression. And I love that, you know, and I hope to be able to encourage and sign and support other artists who wanna be the full expanded versions of themselves who don't want to shrink into a box, you know, and to give them a place to thrive. Like those are some of my, my own aspirations to create that home for mutants. <laughs> like me, me and uh, Jazzy X-Men. Jeff. Yep. You know, Jazzy Jeff, we, we always call him a uh, pr- professor Jeff <laughs> that, that he's created a home for mutants uh, with the playlist collective. Cause we can all just go over there and just be ourselves. But um, yeah, that's, and that's why I mentor so much, you know, to, to, to help Young young artists feel seen, you know, being all of who you are. Because I never felt like that was ever accepted. People always wanted me to be just a portion. I like this part of you, but that other part, I'm like, get it out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not gonna work. But this part, you cute. Just be, just be cute. Just sing. Why you gotta do all this too? <laughs> Is that why you started university? Well, I feel like everywhere I went, women in particular would like say, hey, can I ask you some questions? Can I pick your brain? How was you able to do this? How did you do that? Well, uh, who, who did your contract? Well, well, what did you ask for? You know? And so I was like, okay, there is a need here. And a lot of artists, unfortunately, don't want to share. Mm. You know, may, I don't why know do you why. Think that, yeah, it's like, why do you think that I is? I feel like, you know, to me, it's a lack consciousness that you think that if you share, it will be less for you. But it's really not, you know? And there's no way that we push the culture forward if we don't share with each other. And so if I learn it, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share it with you. I'm the, probably the day I learn it, guess what? <laughs> you know, that's how I feel. I don't feel like we should hoard information. If you find a little trick in the system, you find another way, a route to make this thing work, then we're supposed to share that with each other. And so that's why I wanted to start University. I wanted to create a platform where artists, and artists do, they come to me, they bring me their contracts. You know, I have a, a young mentee that he's... um looking at a bunch of different labels are checking for him right now. And um, and it's sure his lawyer is looking over, but he's not explaining to him why it's not a good deal, why it is a good deal. And what, what do these words mean? And what are your options? So you have what they're suggesting, but what do you want? Let's start with what would make you feel really good inside? <laughs> you know, what would you love to have? And then we're going to negotiate from, from that point. And so I, you know, I spent days going over his contracts and making sure he understood every line in that contract. You need to be knowledgeable. For far too long, there was this sentiment in the industry that artists should just shut up and sing, that you should not know what's going on because now nah, just focus on your art. Okay. Yeah. But I need to know where my money at too, you know, beforehand, Yes, amen. <laughs> before it's gone, <laughs> you know? And so, um, I just think that's so important to empower artists like that. Just being a, we at least should be in a know and may be able to make an educated decision. You know, uh, I asked you at the beginning of the podcast, when did you become unbothered? Before we get to some rapid fire fun questions, I want to ask you, how do you stay unbothered? <sighs> breathing, deep breathing <laughs> techniques, <laughs> deep breathing yeah, man. I, it's perspective, keeping stuff in perspective, keeping the, the vision in perspective, not comparing yourself to anyone. Comparison is a thief of joy. Mm. You know, just like that's yeah, just keeping the keeping the perspective, the vision in perspective. And you know what your trajectory is. I do exercise with my students where we where we scan our body, you know, um, to find where the discomfort is, where it's coming from, what chakra is blocked, what is the root 
narrative around that blockage? What does that really feel like, right? Because sometimes we respond in ways and we just say, well, that's just how I am. Well, I'm from such and such. So that's why I do that, that, that. But, 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 but why do we really do it? What's the real feeling underneath of there? What's the narrative? And then let's write the narrative down. And if it's not the truth, let's find the truth. Let's seek the truth. And let's try to live in the truth, you know? So I do that with myself all the time. Like, hmm, how am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? Is that the truth? Right. You know, how do I find my truth? And so I, I think for me, it's like a process. You know, I'm always um, struggling with myself. You know, I'm working, to, you know, like kneading and toiling like clay. Like, you know, really working working on myself to... Um, because I, I really, I want to be the best version of myself. I want to be whole. I want to be healed. And it's and healing is like an ongoing thing. Yeah. It's not like, I, I spent a few years at such and such and now I'm healed. No, you're not. Mm-mm. No, you're not. No, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It, it There's going to be some new stuff that's going to trigger Definitely. some other stuff. Definitely. <laughs> and every time you trigger, it's like, okay, that's just, a, you know, it's an alarm. All right, cool. I felt triggered. What was, what was the root of that? You know? So that that's how I think I stay unbothered is to just like stalk myself. <laughs> And, you know, and to be honest with myself and, and try to find the truth in all my feelings. So I play a game with every person who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. I'm warning you that this is where the controversy always happens. Uh-oh. Okay. 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 Yeah. It's a game called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You got to pick one. All right. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Maryland blue crab or crab cakes? Crab cakes. Mm. Uh, best crab cake I ever had in my life was in Baltimore. <laughs> and it was so good, I I never ordered them anywhere else. Oh, you shouldn't. Yeah, no. I, and uh, trust me, I went to a place <laughs> called uh, G&M. Mm-hmm. G&M crab cakes. Unbelievable. So that that is like a taste that is staying oh, yeah. with me. More influential for you, Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album. Or Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I know. I know. I'm so wrong for doing this oh. to you. And yet I'm oh. enjoying it. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Lauren Hill. <laughs> it, 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 My no. mother used to c- clean up to Amazing Grace all the time when I was a kid. Like, like literally when I hear it, I just think about cleaning. <laughs> like, I need to wash something. <laughs> okay. Lauren Hill. Uh, emojis or don't feel right? <laughs> Emojis. <laughs> I figured you'd pick your own song. <laughs> I thought that you want to get the most royalties on. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, performing at Black Girls Rock or your tiny desk? Seriously? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Black Girls Rock. <gasps> what? <laughs> get her, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, I mean, that was that was a moment. That was like, and a you know big why? Moment. Because the mothers of the movement were there, yep. and I have a personal relationship with Sandra Bland's mom. You mm-hmm. know, from doing that song, she's an incredible woman. You know, we've done, you know, I've done other work together. Um, she's just a blessing. You know, she'll she'll call me. I was over. I was. I think I was. I was overseas somewhere, and I was really sick. And she called me, and said. Spirit said, you run around too much and you about to get sick because you're not. I said, oh, mom, I'm sick right now. <laughs> you know, sit still, child. Stop doing so much. You know, so we just have such a beautiful relationship. Um, and she wasn't able to make it that night. But just having the mothers of the movement there. Yeah, that was that was a powerful uh, experience for me. Yeah. All right. And finally, art of storytelling or liberation? Outcast version of art of storytelling? Outcast version. 
Susie Screw had a partner named Sasha Thumper. I remember her number like the summer, but her and Susie Screw did through a slumber. All right, uh, artist storyteller. Ooh. Ah, that hurts. <laughs> that, it hurts to even that say hurts. it. Because Liberation, even though it's 20 minutes, Ooh, it's a great song. I'm so tired. It's been so long. Struggling. Ooh. What? I know. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I know. It was me. I told you. Uh, this is where the controversy happens. Uh, uh, okay. But look, you made it through. Okay. See, you got through it. <laughs> Minimal pain. Stomach cramp. <laughs> <laughs> but Mumu, I want to thank you for joining me what? and for spending this time with me. Thank you for thank just you. being so true to who you are. I mean. I just love you so much. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, my agent right. said, Jamel, he'll call like, Oh, you, know what? you better stop That's it. That's what I did when you called. You better stop it. But thank you. And just many, many blessings for you. Thank and you so much. Look, your career is already fabulous. Thank you so Which is much. why it's awesome or going to be awesome to see it get to a, an even higher level. So thank you. So that's it for Moo. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Since I've been living in Los Angeles, which is going on four years now, three well-known rappers have been murdered in this city. The first two were Nipsey Hussle and Pop Smoke. And then the third one happened last week when PNB Rock, real name Rakim Allen, was shot and killed at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles in South Los Angeles. The killer walked into Roscoe's in broad daylight, demanded his jewelry and shot him right in front of his girlfriend and another friend. The robbery occurred after PNB's girlfriend posted a picture of her food from Roscoe's on Instagram and tagged both PNB and Roscoe's. But as people are mourning, the latest example of where guns intersect with a disregard for somebody else's life baked in a culture of gotta come up no matter what. The conversation that has me fucking bothered are the ones that center on everything else but the fact that the man was murdered for no fucking reason. The person receiving the most blame is PNB's girlfriend, since she was the one who tagged their location. And even worse, some people are theorizing that his girlfriend, who also is the mother of his two-year-old daughter, could have been in on the attack. Police have given no indication his girlfriend is in any way involved, nor have they concluded definitively that the killer discovered PNB Rock's whereabouts because of her Instagram post. But recently, on DJ Academics podcast, PNB Rock actually talked about how he almost got robbed in L.A. during the middle of the pandemic. Somebody tried me on Fairfax, like, like mid-pandemic. But it was Why like another so one. Why they so bold, though? I don't know. I guess because niggas be sweet. You feel me? And niggas, they just, niggas see me with my family. And niggas, they think I'm just out here lacking. My takeaway from all of this is that it's jarring, disappointing, and fucked up that we've been so conditioned to accept the violence that we've normalized it. Y'all know I grew up in Detroit, and when I was growing up, it wasn't shit for Detroit to have five or 600 murders a year. People got shot at the movie theaters, at my high school, on the block. Starter jackets, very popular back then. And day after day, you heard story after story about people getting their shit checked in, which is what we call getting robbed. People were getting robbed for Jordans. People were getting robbed for their chains. All the same shit that you're seeing now. And when you grow up in those environments, you learn to navigate around violence. You develop rules around violence. You enact codes around violence. You start to rationalize the violence, which is why instead of directing the anger at PNB's murderer, we're saying shit like, 
you got to check in when you come to L.A. Why was he going to that Roscoe's? Because it's always dudes standing outside looking suspect. Why was he wearing so much jewelry? Why is she tagging his location? She should have known better. Where was his security? I get it. It's the world we live in. It's the reality that we have to think and move that way. But at what point do we say this shit is unacceptable? It's unacceptable that we would tolerate an existence where someone can't come from out of town into a new city without asking permission because that would be considered disrespectful. It is unacceptable that we have to fear each other in our own neighborhoods, that we can't freely walk around with the nice things that we've actually worked hard for. It's unacceptable that a longstanding black institution like Roscoe's now carries the stain of somebody being murdered right in front of their customers. We have to start having brutally honest conversations about why this intra-community violence is so normalized in our culture and communities. I've seen so many people across social media preach about more accountability. But what we're not thinking carefully about is what does that accountability actually look like? It starts with holding leadership accountable, political, community, family, and personal leadership. It starts with understanding that adopting the gross capitalistic values that this country traffics in ultimately destroys our community. Making money, being successful, all good things, not the issue, worthwhile goals. The problem is that by continuing to promote hustle or else culture, a get rich or die trying mentality, money over everything philosophy, those messages become a rationalization to toss aside basic self-respect and dignity. According to the most recent statistics by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the leading cause of death for black men under the age of 44 years old is homicide. The year I graduated from high school, which was 1993, the leading cause of death for black men aged 15 to 24 was homicide. See how that number is creeping up? Now it's 44 years old and under. When I look at the stats, that same statistic, that 15 to 24, has lingered for decades. This is not a new problem. Our responses, though, to this problem aren't new either, which is why it's a continuing problem. We don't pay attention to the reasons. Understand these reasons aren't excuses, but a pathway of getting a handle on the scope and severity of a problem. So let's look at some reasons. Black males have a high school graduation rate of 59 percent, which is the lowest of any population group in the country. As recently as 2016, black men represented just 5% of all undergraduate students in college. By comparison, black women account for 9.7% of undergraduate students, which is the highest among women of any race. Young black men are overrepresented in the criminal justice system for a multitude of reasons, the war on drugs, unfair sentencing, a discriminatory judicial system. In general, we know black men have been treated as threats and predators their entire lives. Pretty much any time you have a lack of education combined with inequity, lack of resources within a country that has more guns than people, over 400 million guns to be exact, the end result is what happened to PNB Rock. The black men being murdered and those turning to murder are on the same drowning boat. And if we don't figure out sustainable ways to get them off that boat, our community will not survive. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. 
from Unbothered Inc. Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7, 5, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.